Welcome everybody, um, everybody listening and watching. Uh, welcome to, as ever, Hapalbra and Caleb Morpin, who are going to be talking to us in conversation today. Uh, and this week's episode, we're going to be talking about the industrialization of the Soviet Union, the USSR. And um, this is a particularly important topic for anybody who's interested in anti-capitalist socialist politics, because of course, we know in theory, you know, we read Marx, we read Engels, we read Lenin, and we put our platforms together to put in front of the masses to explain to them that it's the market economy which is our fundamental problem. Uh, anarchic uh, production for profit and the contradictions within the capitalist system that can't be resolved by capitalism and that what we need is a planned economy to replace it. And of course, the uh, this was this was a theory that people put in front of the masses for a long time. And it was the Soviet Union that was the first to put it into practice. Um, so I wanted to ask Kapal first, if he could talk to us a little bit about the significance of the Soviet Union finally being able to set its five-year plans and really take control of the major levers of the economy. And why it was that, in fact, the first five-year plan didn't start until 1928, which is a decade after the revolution, Clearly, there were a lot of obstacles to be overcome between 1917 and 1928. Um, so maybe, Hapal, you could kick us off on that. Well, the prelude um, or the hiatus of 10 years before the industrialization and collectivization started was the period of the new economic policy, which had been introduced by Lenin uh, soon after the civil war and war of intervention had been uh, defeated and won, won by the Bolsheviks. And at that time, Soviet industry was totally wrecked. And as Lenin said, the proletariat had ceased to exist and the working class in the towns was forced either to move to the countryside or actually just pick up any odd jobs, selling cigarettes, selling cigarette lighters and going around um, just trying, trying, to, trying to make a living. And agriculture was, was, was devastated as well. So the main job at that time was to restore industry. That is the period of restoration. It's not the period of reconstruction. And Lenin's economic plan is in, included in, in his articles on the cooperatives and, and, and his articles on, 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 on uh, 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 the Texan kind. Because during the Civil War, what had happened was it was absolutely essential to get all the food that was available. So whatever the peasants produced and what they did not need for sowing their crops and feeding their families was expropriated by the Soviet state. It, it was called the system of surplus expropriation. Now, after the civil war had been won by the Bolsheviks, that could no longer be done. As Lenin said, the military tactics of a frontal offensive would not work in the period of economic reconstruction. And that was very much shown by the mutiny that broke out at Kronstadt. Um, and what Lenin said was, although it was utilized by socialist revolutionaries, Mensheviks and various other counter-revolutionaries, nevertheless, the peasantry had a genuine grievance and that could only be actually contained and worked with by allowing the peasants 
to sell a certain portion of their food to the states at market at fixed prices and the rest they could keep and sell wherever they, they, they wanted to. So that was the system that operated. And during that period, Soviet industry was restored by 1920, end of 1927 to pre-war levels. So that had to be there. You can't start industrialization by passing a decree and saying, now you will industrialize. A lot of countries have tried to do, and it doesn't succeed. You have to create the economic basis of it. Also industrialization would need food. And so would, uh, uh, how do you provide food to the army and to the industrial workers? At that time, production was very much in the hands of either individual small farmers or the rich farmers known as the kulaks. So their production had to be reduced in importance compared with what the state could do. And in the meantime, through cooperatives and the extensive use of cooperatives and building of state farms and certain collective farms, the Soviet Union by 1928 was able to replace kulak production by production of the collective farms, etc. And that is really the basis of the starting of industrialization. That's why industrialization could not start earlier. Trotsky was a great critic of Stalin that he hadn't started industrialization three years earlier. But as Stalin said, you cannot industrialize on the basis of slogans. You got to create the economic conditions and those economic conditions were just not there. Thanks, Sir Paul. Caleb. Wow. Well, I mean, there's a lot that I could say, but I mean, the rapid industrialization of the Soviet Union and the real economic miracles that they carried out is like it was a widely acknowledged fact at the time that it was happening. The whole world was in awe of what they were achieving. You can read the articles from the New York Times. You can read the articles from Time magazine. I mean, it was just a fact that the Soviet Union was zooming ahead and raising people from poverty and and constructing at a, at a rapid pace. But, um, you know, and really, I guess I should say that discovering that um, was was kind of a big political breakthrough for me because I'd been told my whole life communism failed everywhere it's ever been tried. It's never had a single economic success. And, you know, I was growing up in the 90s and I was just hearing communism. You know, it's a nice idea, but never has it ever been successful anywhere. And I remember I, I actually got my hands on the book, The Revolution Betrayed by Trotsky. And I started reading it because I thought, well, maybe this will show how there could be some kind of communism that could be successful. Uh, and the first chapter of The Revolution Betrayed is called What Has Been Achieved. And it's just economic statistics about the rapid industrialization of the USSR. And I remember I was reading all about the electrification and all these statistics. And Trotsky, of course, is giving these like nitpicky criticisms, but he's acknowledging this huge, huge, rapid advance in industrialization of the Soviet Union. And I thought, I remember seeing this at the time and thinking, well, this can't be true because everybody knows that communism has never been successful anywhere. It's never had a single economic achievement. Ever. This is just common knowledge. So I went and I, I, I got my hands on the encyclopedia and I read the part about the Soviet economy. And I read that what I'd been told and what everyone was repeating, what I'd heard in school, what I'd heard on television, what I've heard from everyone that the Soviet Union had never had a single economic success, that was just not true. And the Soviet Union had vast economic successes, you know, industrialized the whole country, electrified the whole country, built a modern steel industry. The industrialization of the Soviet Union is a historical fact, and the whole world was marveling 
at what the Soviet Union was achieving at that time. Right? The rest of the world was having a great depression. Um, and the fact that that, you know, that that was hidden from us and the fact that we continue to hear still to this day, you'll hear people say the Soviet Union, oh, they never had a success. Socialism has never, never achieved anything, has never had any economic successes. This is so contrary to reality. I mean, what Stalin did with the five year economic plans uh, was something the whole world marveled at uh, and and is a real testament to what the Soviet Union and what socialism can achieve. And the model of industrialization uh, with the five year economic plans, et cetera, uh, you know, Stakhanovism, these things were were a model for many other countries. China's successes, uh, the, the successes of Cuba, the successes of, of countries throughout Eastern Europe after the Second World War. Uh, a lot of countries rapidly industrialized using these methods, and they've been very successful across the planet. So, uh, you know, it, it really frustrates me to see this lie uh, repeated so widely that, that socialist industrialization doesn't work because clearly it does and it has worked and has been very successful. And the whole world knew that during the 1930s. And they've tried to obscure that and wipe that out of our memory. Absolutely. And it's really interesting, isn't it? Because um, you get criticisms from both sides. So there was criticisms, as, as her Paul pointed out, that um, they didn't start the planned economy, the five-year plan, the industrialization drive soon enough. Um, uh, that's one side of criticism, which, as Hapal again pointed out, was completely ignoring the whole um, state that Russia found itself through no fault of its own. You know, the people found they had had the First World War, you know, which destroyed so much of their economy. Then they had the revolution. Then the revolution was quickly followed by civil war. Uh, when the When the Bolsheviks, the, the people were winning the civil war. We had the war of intervention, 14 European countries coming to try to crush the revolution. You know, endless, endless fighting, as Rapal said, having to put the whole country on a war footing. Everybody's on rations. Everybody's just surviving, barely surviving, fighting for their life, fighting for their revolution. You know, and then after that, they've, you know, the economy is absolutely ruined and they've got to try to, you know, pull it all back together before they can even think about, you know, they're implementing their socialist program. They've just they've got to get a get a basis for it. Um, you know, you can't collectivize poverty and somebody's uh, paraphrase somebody. And, um, you know, they they um, they really needed um, to create that basis in order to go forwards. But then, like you say, having started to implement uh, socialism everybody's criticizing them no 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 you need the market you need uh only capitalism only competition only capitalist competition gives people incentives we're constantly told that you know it's the only incentive for people to work otherwise they're lazy it's the only incentive for people to innovate otherwise they just sit around and don't bother you know stagnation stagnation and yet as you've pointed out caleb during the period of the five-year plans were being implemented and socialism was being uh, a socialist program was being implemented in the USSR. In the rest of the world, there was a great depression, the result of the capitalist crisis of overproduction that the Soviet Union was escaping from. So, I mean, you've already started to talk about, you know, the achievements uh, of uh, the five-year plans, the industrialization drive in the Soviet Union. Um, you mentioned briefly there the, the, the socialist emulation that came about, which kind of gives the lie to the idea that you can only um, have competition and striving under capitalism because socialism uh, created in the Soviet Union a great flowering 
of socialist emulation and people trying to better one another in the in the cause of the people, in the cause of building the economy and building a better world. Um, I wondered, Hapal, if you wanted to talk a little bit about the achievements of the five-year plans, including this, you know, socialist emulation drive, and also the kind of the creation of like a new Soviet intelligentsia, you know, young people, new people, uh, intellectuals and specialists who had been educated by the socialist system were being produced in quite a different way than they're produced uh, in under capitalism. Um, yes, I, I do want to comment on those things. Um, but one of the things that has to be understood is you have to understand before you come to its achievements, what the fundamental tasks of this of the five-year plans plan, plan, plans were. And the Bolsheviks always knew, you know, as Stalin always said, he was, you know, his whole wish in life was that he was a pupil of Lenin's and his, his wish was to be the best possible pupil, pupil of Lenin. So he wasn't inventing something new. Lenin had actually laid down all, all, all these plans. They had to be put into effect. And that is his brilliance that these things were put into effect under, under, under his leadership. Because Lenin said very early on, it's not good enough for us to have a good harvest. It's not good for us to have a good light industry. We will not be able to exist as a, as a free independent country unless we build heavy, heavy, heavy industry, unless we lay the foundations for engineering industry, etc. So the fundamental tasks of the Bolshevik plan were at the end of the restoration period, uh, there were three defects in, in industry. One was the equipment that was in the factories was old and antiquated, in some cases, almost medieval. Secondly, there was no heavy industry. And thirdly, there was hardly any machine building industry. Without remedying these defects, it was not possible to make any further progress in the economic field. And the question of building socialism without putting an end to these defects simply does not arise. So the fundamental tasks of the five-year plan was one, to actually move the country from backward technique to the lines of modern and up-to-date tech technique. Secondly, it was to build heavy industry Heavy industry is the main link in the industrialization of the country. You hear a lot of rubbish from bourgeois liberals, the bourgeoisie, and especially people who call themselves the, le the, the, the left, that you know, too much emphasis was put on heavy industry, too much steel was produced. It's like as though Stalin had steel for breakfast, electricity for lunch, and some engineering products for, for dinner. And he's got nothing better to do except be obsessed with it. No, the very basis of industrialization is heavy, heavy industry and machine building industry with engineering being at, at its core. Unless you have these industries, you cannot build properly industry. What's more, the collectivization of agriculture was at the center of and crucial to industrialization because without providing agriculture with modern up-to-date machines, fertilizers, tractors, harvest, com, com, harvest com, combines, etc. It's not possible 
to build agriculture. It's not a question of putting the land together and saying, right, you're collectivized. You've got to provide the economic basis for that prosperity. So although it was the job of the task of the five-year plan to put an end to scattered for form of farming, you know, where there were 25 million uh, farming households, and they were through collectivization reduced to 242,000 collective farms, aided by state farms, also aided by the machine and, machine and tractor stations, which acted almost as the political guide to the, uh, to the collective farms. It's the fundamental task of the, of the five-year plan was also to put an end to the, the weak defense industry. There was hardly any munitions or, or armament industry. And the Soviet Union could not exist in a hostile world without having strong, strong defenses. So these, these were the tasks that the five-year plan ha had to perform. And what's more, in the course of its implementation, the task was to put an end to capitalist elements, both in the towns and in the countryside. Heavy industry and large-scale industry in the towns was all, all owned by the state. And with the collectivization of agriculture, kuluks were eliminated. They were not allowed to join the collective farms unless they somehow found a way of sneak, sneaking into them. And so, because Soviet system, socialist system could not stand on two legs, the socialist leg, leg in the towns and commodity production in, in, the, in the rural districts, because whereas socialist production engenders socialism, commodity production and then engenders capitalism daily, hourly. So the idea was to put an end to individual farming. And all these were fundamental tasks of the five-year plan. If you may allow, if you would allow me just one minute, I I'd like to give you a quotation. When the five-year plan was published, the whole bourgeois press and the bourgeois statesmen claimed it was a delirium. It was a fantasy of the Bolsheviks. It could never be fulfilled. But as the plan began to be executed and its results showed up really with each passing week, they began to change their name and change their tune. And I want to give you a quotation from somebody called uh, Jarvis, who was the head of the United Dominion Trust, hardly a, a socialist organization. And this is what he had to say, if you give me a minute. Now I want to be clearly understood that I'm neither a communist nor a Bolshevist. I'm definitely a capitalist and an individualist. Russia is forging ahead while all too many of our factories and shipyards lie idle. And approximately 3 million of people, that's in Britain only, of our people despairingly seek work. Russia has accomplished her first five-year plan. Jokes have been made about that plan. It has been scoffed at. It has been ridiculed. And its failure has been pre pre predicted. You can take it beyond question, and you will be wise to accept it that under the five-year plan, much more has been accomplished than was ever really anticipated. In all these industrial towns which I visited, a new city is growing up, a city on a definite plan with wide streets in the process of being beautified by trees and grass plots, houses of most modern type with plenty of airspace between them, schools, hospitals, 
workers' clubs, and the inevitable creation nursery where children of working mothers are cared for. Don't, under, un, don't underestimate the Russians or their plans, and don't make the mistake of believing that the Soviet government must crash. Russia today is a country, and this is really what, what I want to emphasize. Russia today is a country with a soul and an ideal. Russia is a country of amazing activity. I believe that the Russian objective is sound, and perhaps the most important of all, these youngsters and these workers in Russia have one thing which is too sadly lacking in the capitalist countries today, and that is hope. No, no, that, that, that is what, towards the end of the five-year plan, Mr. Jarvis, the head of the United Dominion uh, 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 Trust, Trust had to say. Uh, Trotsky, whose um, book um, Caleb has just referred to, uh, you know, Socialism Betrayed. Because for Trotsky and for the Trotskyites, it's one of the peculiarities and of, of these weirdos is more socialism is built, the more revolution is betrayed. <laughs> now, it doesn't make sense. The more you build socialism, the more you are into the business of betrayal of revolution. The very revolution that they said, they, according to their theory, could never succeed. Because socialist, Trotsky's theory of permanent revolution is, unless the revolution comes in all the advanced countries to back up, the Russian revolution must fail. So they have no right really to talk about revolution betrayed because according to their plans, the revolution just cannot succeed. But there's one quotation from Trotsky's socialism, uh, sorry, socialism betrayed, or the revolution betrayed. He says, and that really to me is a big indictment against Trotskyism. Of course, he goes on in the rest of the book to, to, to rubbish the Soviet Union as being bureaucratized and degenerating. The more socialism it builds, the more it becomes bureaucratic, and the more it degenerates. This is what he said. Socialism has demonstrated its right to victory, not in the pages of Das Kapital, not in, but in the industrial arena, comprising one-sixth of the Earth's surface, not in the language of dialectics, but in the language of steel, cement, and electricity, and against a background of stagnation and decline in the cap cap capitalist world. That's what Trot Trotsky said. The rest of the book, of, of course, they, he had to make this admission it, that even the blind could see what had happened in the Soviet Union, that at the end of the five-year plan, it had been transformed from a backward agrarian country into an advanced uh, modern agricultural society. So you could not ignore that. Having accepted it, however, that is the premise for attacking everything that the Soviet Union has done. And any success, it's really a bit like believers in God. Everything good that happens is attributable to the Almighty. Everything that is bad is because of the weakness of us mortal individ sinful ind individuals. So he said, well, all these achievements are due to the property relations brought into existence by the October Revolution. Well, property relations of themselves do not create an economy. They are only the basis for creating an economy and you need a proper policy. Had Trotsky's policy been followed, there certainly would have been no successes that were achieved under the policy that was pursued by the Bolshevik party, having defeated its opponents, external and internal, 
to which perhaps we could return shortly. But this, this is certainly the case that the five-year plan, which was regarded as a delirium and a dream and a fantasy of the, of the Bolsheviks, well, had tremendous successes. And what is more, it was not a private affair of the Soviet Union. It had international significance. The socialism that the Soviet Union was building was inspiring the whole world, in world working class and telling them, if you take power, you can achieve just as much we have achieved. And in the advanced capitalist countries, much more than us, because we started from a very low and backward base, you'll be starting from a much, much higher basis. And because that frightened the daylight out of the bourgeoisie, they had to double their propaganda. They had to increase their propaganda by thousandfold in order to rubbish all the achievements. Oh, yes, there were some achievements, but there was so much repression. There was this, that, and the other. This is another point that we can perhaps later on in the conversation touch upon. Thanks, Apollo. Those were lovely quotes, and particularly I like the one from... Um from Jarvis. But, you know, even Trotsky is forced to admit that, you know, it is the heavy industry that forms the basis of the success of the Soviet Union. It's, that's why Stalin was attacked for understanding that, because people understood that, just as Stalin's attacked because he successfully implemented, you know, socialist planning. And that proves that socialist planning works and that socialism is the future and will take us out of the perennial crises under which we suffer. Um, but the understanding that heavy industry is the basis and advanced technology is the basis for de developing your productive forces so that you can then provide all of the material goods that people need. You know, the underlying uh, condition for all of that provision of more and more goods to people so their lives get better is the development of heavy industry. And that was something that Lenin understood, something that Stalin understood. They implemented it faithfully. And the figures... You know, if you look at the graphs, the exponential increase in production of first the kind of basic important commodities and then the manufactured goods. And, you know, it, they just go, they're going up, up, up so exponentially. And again, as we keep saying, at a time when the world capitalist economy was in the worst ever crisis it, it had seen. Um, you know, it was a crisis that was so bad it gave rise to fascism in the attempt of the of the capitalists to save themselves from the people's anger. Um, and it's interesting, I think, to compare maybe China today has clearly understood that the just to become independent of imperialism, you must make sure that you have your own independent technological base. Um, you know, Russia today is benefiting very much from the legacy of the Soviet Union, that it has a military, a defense industry that compares to anybody's and therefore cannot be pushed around. China's also understood that to defend yourself is to defend peace, to stop yourself from being invaded, to keep your people's security. But it also has understood the importance of a technological base, this, um, you know, 2025 made in China kind of target to, to advance them in China, their technological base and have be, be ahead in all the most important high-tech industries uh, is really drawing the ire of imperialism onto them because, of course, one of the ways imperialism works is to have this monopoly of advanced technology that they only allow people to use for huge fees uh, and won't transfer. Uh, and China kind of undermines that with the way that it behaves. So, um, Caleb, uh, I guess, you know, whatever you wanted to say on, you know, the successes and, uh, and what it shows about socialist economic planning. 
Well, I actually just had two questions for Harpal. Uh, sure. the, the first is um, about Lenin's quotation, uh, where he said, uh, communism is Soviet power plus electrification. Um, and I was wondering if you could touch on that quotation um, and the significance of it, what Lenin was getting at when he said that. Well, th that was really um, in connection with the preparation uh, of, of the um, God's plan, the body that re really subsequently what was to be in charge of five, five year plans. And Lenin's idea was you had to industrialize the country. Electrification is is this simple way of expressing the country had to be uh, had had to be industrialized and so you know soviet power plus electrification is is communism which leading really means that without building industry and lenin was always um, of the view that the link to building industry was the heavy industry without that it was not possible because when we say heavy industry it's not something that's heavy to carry it's industry that produces the means of production. You know, if you look at Marx's capital, there are two departments, the, the, the department that produces the means of consumption then the department that produces the means of production. So what we need is not only the machines that can produce things, but we also need machines that can produce machines. And for that, you need engineering, you need um, electrification, you need power, and that was really the, the crux of it. Heavy industry is very crucial to, to planning. Without that, you can neither re-equip industry, nor can you re-equip transport, nor can you re-equip agriculture. So when people say, and this is another um, slander against Soviet Union, subsequently against China, that they ignored agriculture. No, they didn't. What it meant was that the investments on the development of industry, and especially heavy industry, were far greater in proportion than investments in agriculture. But that also benefits agriculture, because by making these investments and making it possible for industry to supply the wherewithal that collective farms need, you had to develop heavy industry. And the Soviet people understood that. That's precisely why, you know, they actually worked hard. And Jyoti has referred to the question of socialist emulation. That was a really big movement during the first five-year plan. The second five-year plan gives rise to the Stokhanovite movement. We come to that later. But the, it brought in Soviet emulation. And Stalin was able to declare, declare proudly that the labor has in the Soviet Union become a matter of honor, a matter of glory, and a matter of valor. Sure, and I also I wanted to ask about H.G. Uh, Wells' interview with Stalin because there's a, a great conversation between Stalin and H.G. Wells. I believe it's from 1931 or 32. Maybe it was a little later than that. Um, but can you touch on the significance of that conversation? I have to remind myself of what that conversation was about. H.G. Wells asked all sorts of questions, including personal ones, how did he survive all, all these trials and tribulations and and you know, what, what, what exactly did he, I think I may be confusing it with his interview with, with Amy. Hmm. Okay, 
Well, one of the uh, one of the points that I remember that came um, up in with Emil Ludwig, oh. you know, whether he compared himself to with to Peter, Peter Peter the Great because he was a great builder in the earlier times. He said, no, there's a lot of difference. Peter the Great was a representative of the of the feudal ruling classes. My job is to raise the working class to the highest standard of living and to maintain its power. And so there's no comparison. Um, but really, I I don't remember the details of his interview with H.G. Wells. In the interview that H.G. Wells did with Stalin, uh, he asked Stalin about how he was similar to Roosevelt. And he, he brought up how the five-year plan seemed to have been an influence on various capitalist countries around the world at that time. Uh, in the United States, we had the Works Progress Administration where Roosevelt was building lots of infrastructure uh, and I know Mussolini uh, and the fascists of Italy were kind of somewhat inspired by the five-year plans. I think Sidney and Beatrice Webb, uh, two labor laborites in Britain, were very inspired by it. Can you talk about the, you know, the influence the five-year plans had on the capitalist world and the various attempts to imitate what the Soviet Union was achieving uh, on the basis of a capitalist economy and, and what went on with that? Because I, I find that to be very interesting. Well, really the capitalist countries were interested in safeguarding the life of capitalism. They were not interested in Soviet planning. Soviet planning is not possible in a private economy. Whatever Roosevelt did, you know, it cannot be compared to the five-year plans in the, in, the, in the Soviet Union. Whatever the fascists did cannot be compared because what the fascists did was that they either took direct or indirect control of certain industries which would help them in, the, in their wartime. And likewise, Roosevelt did certain certain things. He, I mean, he did introduce certain welfare measures, which subsequently after the war, every capitalist country had, had to introduce because the working class was in such a state of despair and uh, it would not do well to the health of the capitalist system if the working class was to revol revolt against it. But the Soviet plan is of a completely different type and it can only be done on the basis of the socialization of the means of production, on the basis of the public ownership, state ownership of the, of the, of the mean, means of production. And that's what the Soviet revolution had done. Soviet five-year plans would not have been possible or feasible or realizable under the conditions of private property, because private property means private individuals have to produce. The state can give directions, it can give guidance, but no capitalist is obliged to produce, but capitalism only produces for profit. No capitalist will produce just because there is a five-year plan and Roosevelt or Mussolini or Churchill has said, you, you must produce. This does, does, not, does not happen. The capitalists only accept one incentive, that is profit. And if profit is not coming, it's not possible to realize any plan. But under the Soviet system, it's a completely different story. Not all industries pay all the time. There are certain industries which take 10 years to start being profitable. You know, heavy industry is one of those. It doesn't bring profits immediately. Textile industry, even better, liquor industry is immediately profitable. You start producing tomorrow in the morning, in the evening. There's a queue of people who want to buy a bottle and, and the profits, profits come in. But heavy industry takes a long time to generate uh, profits and therefore really you can't compare those. Yes, of course they had to take note. The Soviet economic planning 
had a devastating effect on the capitalist countries. They tried to imitate not the Soviet Union, but to take certain measures which would avert the collapse of the capitalist system. That's, that's what they were doing. Well, I've got a little question along the lines of uh, about the technicalities of planning as well, because one of the things you hear these days uh, from people who are kind of really into China, kind of China fans, I, I call them, and who want to say that everything China does is perfect socialism, they will justify China's um, reversion to mainly market mechanisms by saying that uh, it's not possible yet for China to implement uh, state planning. Uh, and the reason is because it's too complicated. And they will often say there's a kind of tech determinism, I think of it as, where people say, ah, when we have the technology, when, we, when big data has got even bigger and we're able to use technology to help us, then China will be, when we've got the right software, when we've got the right programming languages, I've even heard people talk about, then China will be able to properly implement, you know, full state planning. But right now it's simply too complicated. And that's why they had to revert from a planned economy to a market economy. No, not at all. That's, that, 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 that's, that's total rubbish, if you, if you don't mind my, my saying so. Technology only produces what you put into it. Technology does not produce out of thin air. What the computer will come out is what you put into the computer. Somebody's got to feed it. Somebody's got to t tell it. And my answer to people is always like, you can make a plan on the back of a fag packet if you need to. You know, you can do it with pencil and paper. And Gosplan was a brilliant example of that. I, I, I have to say, you know, I do ask people to, to look at the, the eyewitness accounts of what was going on in the Soviet Union during this period, because they're so exciting to read. And I can't remember where it was, maybe in um, uh, the Red Cardinal's book, um, Hewitt Johnson, that was his name, wasn't it? Uh, the Socialistics of the World. It might be in that book. There's the most glorious description of the process of planning and the atmosphere in Gosplan, their kind of headquarters of Soviet planning, uh, during, you know, when they were making the plans and how it would iterate, how, you know, people in the regions uh, and areas would be asked to make their list of priorities and they'd get sent into Gosplan and Gosplan would put it all together and say, right, well, we think this satisfies everybody. They'd send it back out. This is what we think the plan should be. And then, you know, everyone would look at it and say, oh, well, yes, but no, but and send in their kind of corrections or amendments or requests. Back it would go to the centre, more planning, you know, and this kind of iterative process of, of communication between that this is not, you know, we're always told it's a top-down economy, how terrible, people just being told what to produce and told what they're going to consume. And no, it was about fulfilling the needs of the people based on what was available, where they were now, where they reasonably could expect to get to in the next few years, what they would like to see happen, can we achieve it? You know, and the the, the sort of dynamism of that process and, and the, you know, the atmosphere in the Gosplan office, you know, clearly they didn't have big data and huge number crunching machines, but they were able to, with people, pens and paper, they were able to process all that information and, um, and set the wheels in motion of the entire Soviet economy, which was, you know, on a massive scale. So um, maybe we'll, we'll kind of move on from that, from that topic, because Dad, you, you were talking about that a bit before. Um, Caleb. Can I, can, I, can I comment upon the point you just made? Yeah, I do. Well, if the Soviet plan was successful on the basis of a lower level of technology than today's technology, and they're not succeeding now because they say we haven't got the technology, 
what it actually implies, these people don't actually think through what they're saying, is in order for the five-year plan to be successful, you need lower technology, you need, need backwardness. Now, the technology we have should make planning more easy, not, 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 not less, less, less easy, because what will take days to number crunch, you can do literally in, in minute, minutes today. That eases the task, but the basic task of the five-year plans is based on the social ownership of the means of production. That is the baseline. Without that, it's not possible to have any planning under any, 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 any system, if you like. So people are just finding excuses for marketization of the economy. Like people who cannot explain why the Soviet Union collapsed. They'll tell you there was too much bureaucracy, there was too much repression, the government was interfering too much in the economy, all sorts of things. What they don't understand is, it's the market that has corroded the old system and over a period of 30, 40 years, it has led obviously to the restoration of capitalism. The market and planning are actually contradictory phenomena. They do not take place along with each other. It's not that they can go in parallel lines and suddenly at one stage they merge into socialism and socialist planning. Socialist planning is made possible and the basis of socialist planning is the social ownership of the means of production. Without that, there is no socialist planning. Once you introduce the market, uh, market mechanisms work in a completely diff diff different way. So I don't buy the thesis that, you know, we don't have the tools and technology at the moment to be able to do planning. That, 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 that's just an excuse for marketization. Caleb, I feel like you had some more points you wanted to make or questions you wanted to ask Kapal about. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, I just on that point about planning, I mean, uh, look at the planning that big capitalist enterprises like Amazon or Walmart use. They, they have very sophisticated mechanisms for gathering data um, and, you know, having the goods delivered and, and acquiring things. It's all done on the basis of profit, but there's a huge amount of centralization. Uh, and there's a huge amount of, uh, of gathering of information, et cetera. And so on the, on the basis of socialism and planning an economy, that could be done as well. Um, and some of these gigantic capitalist corporations kind of show that, that, that uh, the idea that, that planning couldn't be carried out is just utterly false. It's just they carry out this planning in order to make profits. Um, you know, libertarians and, and critics of socialism will often point to what they call the economic calculation problem. And they'll say, well, no one could ever possibly plan out an economy because it's just too complex. It, it, it's clearly not the case. The Soviet Union was able to you know, raise itself up you know, with economic planning. And we have very sophisticated mechanisms of gathering data now. So I think economic planning is very possible. Absolutely. We were talking a little bit about what the five-year plans produced in terms of not only raising up the level of industry, raising up the level of agriculture, but therefore also raising up the level of everything in society for people, you know, better housing, better food, better culture, you know, all kinds of things came out of the five-year plans, better education, better health services, better environment for people to live in. Um, and they produced alongside, as part of this culture, this, this sense of, and um, that quote from Jasper that you gave us, Dad, was really uh, summed it up at the end when he says, what they have is hope. 
And this feeling that of hope that in everything you do, you're contributing to making society better. And you don't just feel that in your mind, you see it with your eyes every day, every day around you, you know, people's wages were going up, you know, sort of doubling year on year. You know, so the amount of consumer goods that were available to them was also going up, even as the emphasis was put on heavy industry. The result of that emphasis was more consumer goods for people, a nicer life, an easier life, shorter working hours, you know, and, and more leisure time and better leisure facilities, and better cultural facilities. But also there was this production of the Stakhanovite movement. It inspired people, especially young people, to really want to give their all to this process that they could see revolutionizing, transforming the world around them. Um, Hapal, I don't know if you wanted to talk about the Stakhanovites a little bit. Well, the first five-year plan was accompanied by, by socialist emulation, but that was still at the lower level. By the time the second five-year plan comes and the Stakhanovite uh, movement arose during the second five-year plan, it arose on the basis of higher technique and higher technology and higher productive uh, uh, production methods. Stakhanovites were new people who actually squeezed out of technique, everything that could be squeezed, who counted the saving not only of minutes, but even of, of seconds, seconds. They were innovators in industry. They actually get, got rid of stagnation. They got rid of old thinking. They sometimes corrected the engineers who were responsible for some of the techniques. They corrected production managers because they came up with new ideas of sol solving pro pro problems. And that could only be done on the basis of higher technique and being trained trained for those jobs, being sent to colleges to study, learning within within industry uh, it, 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 itself. And that is extremely important. The, the role of the experts, role of the intelligentsia, role of the technician. There were a lot of things that people during the Cultural Revolution, uh, this is not Mao's fault, there are people like Charles Bettelheim and one of your compatriots, uh, Raymond Lotter, you know, who were against central planning because it took away the initiative of the, of, of the masses. On the contrary, under the Soviet plans, the masses unleashed huge amount of initiative. The Soviet plans could never have been fulfilled without unleashing the initiative of the masses of tens of hundreds of millions, if you like, of, of people, tens, twenties, and thirty million, million, million people in industry. They were the ones who produced, and they could only produce if they were enthused to produce. They knew they were building a wonderful life for themselves, their children, and, and, their, and their grandchildren. And that was the basis of so, so Soviet um, industrialization. The Stakhanovites actually broke world records. If you look at Soviet production, Stalin tractor works came up within 11 months and beat world records in the sphere of productivity. Productivity of labor is extremely important. Socialism cannot be successful without having a very high productivity of labor. Just as capitalism had a far higher productivity of labor than feudalism, it provided people with a better life than feudalism could do. Socialism did better than that. And it can do better than that precisely because the means of production 
here are not in conflict with the relation of production. The October Revolution brought the relation of production forward to coincide and, and, and coordinate with the productive, productive for, forces. Productive forces in capitalist society are social, but, but the relationships are such that this, these productive forces are owned by private individuals and they produce for profit and every now and then they can't sell the goods and there's a crisis of overproduction. The Soviet Union could make the progress during the five-year plans because it was never affected by any crisis of, of overproduction. And what the Soviet plans did show was the superiority of the socialist system compared with capitalist system. You know, before that, the capitalists used to say their system was the best in the world. But first, the success of the five-year plans showed that socialism was the best system and that was the future for humanity, that capitalism had nothing to offer, that it was past itself by date and it was time that it was consigned to the museum of antiquities. It was buried. That is, that is what it showed. That's why the Soviet Union evoked such hatred and wrath towards itself on the part of the bourgeois of the whole world, especially of the imperial, 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 imperialist countries. So Soviet planning was successful precisely because it was based on the social ownership. And as that, uh, Caleb has all, uh, rightly said, capitalism also plans in a way. Look at Amazon. It's organized tens of millions of workers. It get, gets goods from one corner of the world to another. You know, every little village in every corner of the world, in the, even in the most backward countries, is connected with the capitalist world market. They're able to get you things within 24 hours, 36 hours, 48 hours, and they're delivered, delivered to your house. So these are the achievements. We don't want to go back to the time when this was not possible. Like a lot of petty bourgeois critiques of capitalism want to go back to the earlier days of small industry, little businesses, everybody being, being happy. Small businesses lead to big businesses and centralization. What socialism will do is not go back to individual and small commodity production. It'll go forward on the achievements of the capitalist era. As Lenin said, the socialization of production increases further under the conditions of imperialism. And imperialism drags even the capitalists quite against their will into a, into a kind of system which is transition, transition to the next stage, i.e. To, 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 to socialism. And socialism would socialize production even further, even further than Amazon and other such enterprises are able to do. Definitely. Caleb. Um, well, I just wanted to ask about, um, you know, the, the new left critique uh, that we often hear, um, you know, that I think, you know, Stakhanovism, this, this program of, you know, rewarding workers who went out of their way to have great achievements, the people who, you know, dug the most coal or the people who did the most uh, in terms of production, uh, the socialist emulation. It's been criticized by Che Guevara. It was criticized by Mao. You hear Trotskyites also criticize it. And they say, well, these are material incentives. This is capitalist uh, methods. You're rewarding those who work the hardest. Uh, so that's fundamentally contrary to socialism. People should just be be working, uh, you know, because they want to help the country. Um, you know, how do, how do you respond to, to these critiques that were common among like the 1960s new left, right? This idea that Stakhanovism was, you know, somehow, somehow reinforcing competitiveness among the working class. 
Well, that's again. Sorry, Dad, Dad, just before you answer, can I just ask you to explain who is Stakhanov? Because we keep saying Stakhanovite, like everybody knows, but who's well, has anybody heard of Stakhanov? Well, it's very topical. You must have heard of Donbass. Stakhanov was a coal, coal miner in the Donbass, and he produced new methods of hewing huge amounts of coal in dimensions which had never been uh, done before. So the movement was named after him of doing the best, squeezing the best out of technique and producing more. That is what Stakhanovite movement was about. It arose in the Ukraine, in the Donbass region, but it spread to all industries, not just just just, just coal, coal, coal mining. Um, the the other, other point that we were discussing is incentives. We touched upon it on an earlier occasion. Marxism does not stand for equality. There's no equality under socialism and there's no equality under communism, i.e. the higher stage of socialism. Under socialism, you do work according to your ability and you're paid according to the work you put in. Under the higher stage, each according to his ability to each according to his needs. Again, somebody's needs might be greater, but they may not be able to contribute much to production. They're too old. They have physical disability. They have mental disability, all sorts of things, but you still have to look after people. people. So there's no equality. So the whole idea that you will abolish all incentives of wage differentials under, under the earlier stage of socialism is anti-Marxian and it is petty bourgeois. It's not. It's. It's. it's it does not stand, stand to, uh, to to reason or economic um, practice. And and this and the second thing is uh, that incentives corrupt people. Stalin said, "Comrades, freedom alone is not enough. The October Revolution has freed has freed people from exploitation and from oppression. But you cannot live on freedom. People need to have." butter, people need to have food, people need to have uh, bread and all the rest of it. And unless you provide people, unless you make their life joyful, they're not happy, happy to work in the circumstances. So incentives being given to people to produce within certain limits are not contrary to socialism. On the contrary, they encourage production. So there were these, these differences in the Soviet Union and quite, quite, quite right, rightly so. And all, whatever the rhetoric that came from China during the Cultural Revolution, these differences were never abolished. They continued to be operated. The political rhetoric was one. I don't really blame Mao Zedong for every, everything there. It's people who are followers. They're sometimes more enthusiastic than, 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 than their leader. They get hold of some slogan and they take it to the absurd limits. So to say that everybody you know, should be paid the same, it's just not something that works. And in fact, if it was practiced to a certain extent, it helped the reformers very much by saying, look, that's what actually hindered our production. And now we're going to introduce these, these differentials on a much wider scale. And we're gonna privatize sections of the industry because that's what produces an uh, initiative. That's what gives incentives. That is not true. The Soviet Union could do without any such incentives. In a period of 13 years, the Soviet Union covered the distance that it took important capitalist countries, something like 100 to 150 years. 
including United States of America, which had, after the Civil War in America, phenomenal progress in industry, all the same. Its achievements were nothing in comparison with the achievements that the Soviet Union did in, 19, uh, in the 1930s. And the other thing that is often done is the tempo of industrialization, industrialization was too fast. It should have been slowed down. It should have given people some rest. Stalin made a speech to managers of, of Soviet industry in, uh, in, in 1931. He said, we are 50 or 100 years behind advanced countries. We make this, we close this gap in 10 years or they crush us. Almost prophetically to the day, 10 years later, the, the, the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union. Had Soviet Union not industrialized herself, had it not collectivized its agriculture, had it not raised the cultural and technical level of, of the Soviet people in the Second World War, it would have been beaten fair and square, as in fact was anticipated by Bureau Pandits, who said Soviet Union would last three months. Well, three months went past, then they say six months. Six months went by and they became four years and the Nazi armies were driven out of Soviet Union and the, and the Soviet armies followed all the way to Berlin and the Soviet soldiers were able to raise the red flag on the Reichstag. That was the crowning victory of socialist planning. That was the crowning victory of the Soviet Union. No matter how history is being rewritten and has been rewritten since the demise of the Soviet Union, the Second World War was won by the Soviet Union on the Eastern Front, on the Eastern Front, not on the, on the, on the Western Front. And there was all the capitalist countries put together lost less than 1 million people. The Soviet people lost 27 million of their most young population in that war. 10 million lost in the war uh, as soldiers and another 17 million because the Nazis were in the business of destroying everything that came their way. They destroyed 7,000 towns, 30,000 villages and, ha and hamlets. They destroyed over 3,000 uh, 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 state farms. They destroyed a huge number of collect collector farms and they destroyed something like 30,000 enterprises, um, uh, you know, uh, production enterprises. And all the same after the Second World War, within two years of the ending of the Second World War, Soviet production was restored to the pre-Second World War level. And two years later, it, the production had doubled to the pre-war level. These are all achievements of socialist production, which was carried on, of course, after the Second World War. The third five-year plan was interrupted by the war in its third year. The fourth and five-year plans, as indeed the first and second, were not only completed, completed ahead of schedule, the five-year plan is a misnomer because it was completed in four years, four years and three months. And in fact, the workers competed with each other that in their sector, they wanted to reduce the period within which they completed the plan. So if you're talking of socialist incentives, here's a perfectly good example. People giving all they had, all of their energy, 
to fulfill and overfulfill the plans. That is what was happening. Absolutely. I think it's really important when we look at this question of, um, of inequality um, to understand that this socialism, the, the lower stage of communism, the stage that comes straight after the revolution where we're building socialism, it's an e epoch. It's a whole period of history where we're transforming the basis of the economy, the culture, the level of the people, the productive forces, our ability to provide everything for everyone. And we're developing towards the culture where what Engels said is put into practice that, that labor become life's prime want, rather than something you do because someone cracks the whip and you have to pay the bills. Work is something that you start to feel is central to your existence and the main reason why you're a human being and you're alive. And that is, it is in fact a state which is natural to human beings, but we've lost it under class society because of coercion and poverty and inequality. We've lost our connection and our alienation from ownership of everything that we produce. We've lost our connection and our love for work and our sense of its meaning. And socialism over the period of socialist construction rebuilds that sense of meaning. And you see that with the Stakhanov movement. You know, it was named after this exemplary minor. But this creativity that's unleashed by socialism, which allows people to feel important, not only that their work, everything they do is meaningful, is producing something that people need, is a, is a necessary and respected job, which makes a massive difference to how you feel about your work, but also that, and that you can see in front of you life getting better for you and everyone around you, but also that you, every individual, has the facility to feed back into the system when they see something that could be better. And that was the amazing thing about the Stakhanovite movement, the inspirational thing. What a wonderful time to be alive. Not only you're working doing something useful, not only you can feel your life getting better and everyone around you filled with hope, but if in your little bit of the national effort, you can see something that can be improved, you can tell people and you will see that change take place in front of your eyes. That was exactly one of the reasons that helped the Soviet Union win World War II. When the Nazis invaded, their um, armaments industry was behind the Nazi one. But that exact process of feedback enabled them to overtake, even, uh, even while they were fighting, they were constantly perfecting you know, on the basis of all the efforts of all the people involved in producing armaments and machines and tanks and aeroplanes, they were perfecting their machines all the time. And by the end of the war, their armaments were better than the Nazis. Even under those conditions, that process was enabling them to harness the creative power of their people. And capitalism's got nothing like that. It can't possibly compete with that ability to harness so many brains, so much creativity, so much work. You know, no wonder that, you know, society just exponentially starts to grow on, on all fronts. So, you know, you, we, do, we see the, the, the germs of that in capitalism, in imperialism with, as you talked about earlier, Hapal, that imperialism, and you, and you were saying it, Caleb, imperialism socializes within, within sectors. You, an area gets monopolized and the monopolies are planning within their sector, uh, but they've got limits on their ability to plan and limits on their ability to sell, you know, which mean that, you know, their plan can't produce, you know, welfare for the people. It can only help them to maximize their profits, you know, but they are laying the groundwork, as Lenin said in his book on imperialism, they're making it 
you know, more simple for us to construct socialism. You know, we in our countries, in America, U USA, in Britain, we're not going to have to worry about expropriating or bringing along, collectivizing lots of tiny peasants. We've got agribusiness. They've, you know, collective farms, st state farms, state farms are going to exist straight away. And we've had our revolutions because, you know, the, the, the land is held by huge landowners and farming is done on this huge mechanised level that will make socialism in the countryside much easier to implement. I, I probably am going to need to wrap up here, unfortunately. It looks like I've got I've got some other folks calling for my attention. Um, uh, but do we want to make concluding remarks uh, before we end or? Yeah, please. Just, 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 just like to make a few concluding remarks. Sure. What the, the Soviet central planning did was that it's far superior to a market economy. What it did prove was that in the olden days, the myth was spread by the bourgeoisie was the working class may be able to destroy the old, it can never build anything new. And what the Soviet industrialization proved was that the working class is capable not only of destroying the old, but of building a new and wonderful society. What it was able to show was that Soviet central planning produced very, very high rates of productivity of labor. Socialism cannot be successful without producing abundance of goods. Jyoti's mentioned to the happy life under primitive communism, but I'm afraid it was still a brutal life when you were powerless against the forces of nature. What the socialism and the high stage of socialism do is actually they produce the common ownership under a completely different system where there's abundance of goods goods uh, on the basis of which people can actually consider work to be the prime want, 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 want of life. What it showed was it was perfectly possible. The myth was you could not build, the Trotsky's myth was you couldn't build socialism in one country. And the successes of the Soviet Union proved that it was possible to build socialism even in one country take, 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 taken singly. It showed that the life of working people improved, not only in terms of wages, that was only a part of it, but the social provision that was there. You know, if you got your accommodation at very low cost, if you got your schooling free of charge, if you had nursery, nurseries and creche at workplaces, if you had holiday resorts, for children during summer holidays, which are under our system only available to the privileged, very rich, rich people. If you got all those facilities, it didn't matter what your pay home packet was because it's not, pay home packets don't buy anything by themselves. So if all those facilities are available, there's no, no need to worry. The Soviet Union by the end of the first five-year plan was able to introduce seven hour a day work day in all surface industries, something which was not introduced several decades after the end of the Second World War in capitalist, capitalist countries. It was able to provide for the liberation of women. And you're told Stalin killed, I don't know, 200 million people. But between the 1930 and 1934, Soviet population had increased by 8 million. If so many were being killed, the population simply would decline. It would, it would not increase. I mean, the restoration of capitalism in Russia has led to a huge reduction in, in the population of the country through a number of um, sources. 
um, which we cannot discuss because Caleb's got to go. So all in all, you know, it showed the superiority of the socialist system as against the capitalist system and the superiority of central planning as opposed to anarchic commodity production or as opposed to decentralized production as was being advocated by the likes of uh, Raymond Lotta and Charles Bettelheim uh, from, from, uh, from France who railed against the dictatorship of centralized planning and centralized management. Centralized planning alone gives you the opportunity for producing very cheaply, for increasing the ability, your technical abilities, and for helping the process of accumulation so that more uh, resources can be devoted to increasing production. So all in all, it, it was really a wonderful advertisement for socialism. And we will one day come, come back to it. History moves in this way. It has not moved as was to be expected, thanks to Christian revisionism and the ravages it has, it has wrought. But, you know, as Chernyshevsky would say, our day, our day will come and there'll be joys in our street. And I really think that, that there's no need to lose hope. Faint hearts lose hope. We have to stand up and stand for it, even if the whole world goes around saying we're wrong, we are mad, that doesn't matter. As far as I'm concerned, the whole world that opposes us is mad, we are not mad. And in the end, they'll have to come back to it and learn the proper way of conducting an economy. Thank you, oh. to you, Caleb. And thank you. Thanks for listening to Proletarian Radio. We aim to bring you the best Marxist analysis on current affairs, revolutionary history, and theory. Do like, comment, subscribe, and share our content to help us reach the widest possible audience. We are a small organization with limited resources, and we need workers' support if we are to grow and fulfill our mission. If you are able to make a one-off or regular donation, no matter how small, please visit our website at thecommunists.org and register as a supporter.